possible. I don't think anyone can badger anyone like I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stephanie Kirchgeisner's story about a multi-billionaire, a royal prince, phone hacking and murder was jaw-dropping. We're learning new details of an extraordinary claim that Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' phone was hacked by Saudi Arabia. The Guardian reports an investigation ordered by Bezos blames the hacking on a personal message that apparently came from Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The United Nations and it won the Guardian's investigations correspondent in Washington, D.C., a British Journalism Award in recent months. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and I called Stephanie to find out more about her reporting of the story. But I began our conversation by asking how she entered the world of investigative journalism. I became a journalist back in 2000. I started with the Financial Times in New York. They were building up their American, uh, North American operation and... Um, I started off working on the website of the Financial Times, and I wasn't formally in a reporting role, but i um, that's really what I wanted to be doing. And so I, I see this as kind of the formation of myself as, a, as an investigative reporter, is that there were a lot of stories about corporate malfeasance at that time, um, you know, WorldCom, Enron, all those kinds of stories. And I started by just working to try to find information. Um, often it was through looking through corporate filings and just digging, digging, digging. And people who consider or investigative reports are quite obsessive. You know, that's really a, a trait I think you'll find and uh, need to have a long attention span to try to not lose focus on a story and to keep trying to find the answers they're looking for. I just enjoy that kind of work. So it's not that I had a formal role of being an investigative reporter, but I became someone who really enjoyed looking at those corporate fraud stories and um, finding ways to do it. So my, so my career really took a lot of changes, I should say, that um, I covered politics for a while for the Financial Times. I covered business, business and politics. And then I actually moved to Italy uh, with my family and started at The Guardian. Uh, that was back in 2015. And I was covering um, Italian politics and life and uh, culture and the Vatican. And um, Trump got elected. And so there I was an American abroad and there was so much to do. And I had about a decade of experience in Washington, D.C. before that. Um, and so I started helping out on those kinds of stories, and that's really what I wanted to be doing. So that got me into investigative reporting and meeting certain editors and working with other reporters at The Guardian. Uh, and then when it was time for me to move back to D.C., I ended up having this great job as U.S. investigations uh, correspondent for The Guardian. So that was very lucky. I just love, you know, exposing facts. That to me is the role of an investigative reporter. Um, expo even if they happened obviously in the past, giving readers a new or better understanding of what has happened. And over the last year, you know, I cover a lot of different topics. I cover issues in Saudi Arabia. I cover surveillance. That's a big topic of mine. But I also cover domestic U.S. issues. One of the stories I was really proudest of this last year in 2020 was a story about uh, the child separation policy 
in the US and by the Trump administration. And I had written a story about a conference call that had occurred between a very senior Department of Justice official, Rod Rosenstein, um, he was the number two, and other US attorneys. And there was a conversation about the age of the children who were to be separated and whether there could be an age limit to the children that would be separated. And Rod Rosenstein saying, no, there is no such age limit. So that had occurred, you know, back in 20, now I'm not sure if I'll get the date right, but 2018 or 2019. And it was really significant fact. I mean, it was one fact story. You know, this is something he said on a conference call, but it was important because it really shined a bright light on on the way officials had been making the decisions that ended with, you know, children who were younger than five being separated from their parents, which is obviously a human rights violation and a travesty. So that was a story I was quite proud of. Any anything that you can that you can find that that is illuminating uh, a fact, especially when it's a little bit, uh, when there's been a, a different narrative. In this case, a narrative that it was only the kind of crazy Trump people who were leading this policy. In fact, this was a very high, uh, pretty highly respected by the end. You know, none of them are that highly respected anymore, but um, it was a more of a career official who had done this and not, you know, Stephen Miller at the White House, although it was him as well. So, so th- there's a distinction between revealing facts and revealing significant facts, I guess. I think there's also a skill that you learn, which is that sometimes, um, for example, right now I'm trying to, to, to dig out a story about you know the funding of this insurrection that occurred just last week and uh, where some of the senators get their money from. So in some ways, that is a very public fact. And so you think as an investigative reporter, but what can I do in addition to this? You know, what are the additional questions that we can ask to make this an interesting story? Because I see my role as quite privileged within the world of journalism, you know, where there's been so many cutbacks when newsrooms have to do more with less. And I have the freedom and privilege to have time. You know, I don't have um, editors breathing down my neck, you know, saying, when are you filing, when are you filing? Because I, and I'm lucky, I, I get to take my time. That also means I need to produce results that show that that time was warranted. <laughs> if we can, let's just have a, a chat about your Jeff Bezos story. What do our listeners need to know about the context and the background about what was going on uh, at the time of your story, but also maybe in the year or two, 18 months leading up to that revelation? Um, well, the context of it really was that I had been, for me personally, I had been looking at surveillance software, spyware, hacking software that had been used and various people who had been targeted by it. I personally find the surveillance issue to be really significant and a, and a real intrusion into people's rights and a real threat to democracy. So it's an issue I take really seriously and I try to hit it in kind of different ways and any way that I can. Um, and so I'd been writing about um, spyware and I'd also been writing about Saudi Arabia and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And and as a result of that, I came into contact with people and got to know, you know, different sources um, on that topic. And so that was kind of laying the groundwork for the eventual publication of that story. 
So Jeff Bezos had come out, um, you know, Jeff Bezos is not only the world's richest man through Amazon, but he's obviously the publisher, uh, uh, the, 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 um, the owner, I should say, of the Washington Post. And um, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, he did um, kind of activate him and he became, uh, well, first of all, the Washington Post, you know, pretty relentlessly covered the issue and was publishing stories that, you know, piece by piece were pointing the finger of blame at Mohammed bin Salman. And the Post, you know, was continuing to do that. Now, was Jeff Bezos directing that? I actually don't think so. Um, you know, that's just not, well, I'm sure there, there are, you know, various stories that could, I'm sure, be told about ways that, you know, maybe he has influenced things. But, but at the end of the day, you know, no one thinks that he was calling up uh, Marty Baron and, and saying, you need to write this story. Those were decisions were being made by Marty Baron, I'm sure, um, on his own and with his um, editors. But anyway, that's what that was kind of the backstory. Um, so Jeff Bezos, a security official who worked for him, had come out and written a story in The Daily Beast saying that Jeff Bezos had been hacked, essentially, and that Saudi Arabia had hacked him. It was a pretty sensational story uh, piece, but it didn't get like tons and tons and tons of traction because there was very little detail. And uh, at the same time, there was a, a really explosive story in Jeff Bezos' personal life, which is that he'd had an affair and the affair had been exposed by the National Enquirer the National Enquirer had gotten text messages and kind of private messages. There were some issues around the brother of the woman who he'd had the affair with and that he had possibly been involved in leaking this information to the National Enquirer. So it was all just incredibly murky. And and that divorce, by the way, was the most you know exp expensive divorce of all time. And his ex-wife ended up with um, a significant amount of money as a result of that divorce. So it was lots of issues kind of swirling around. And then this sort of unverified claim that Bezos had been hacked. Not only hacked, but extorted, <laughs> which is another part of it. I mean, it's, it's just soap opera involving the richest man in the world that um, not only had he been hacked, but that later the National Enquirer, exe National Enquirer executive had, had contacted Bezos you know, through intermediaries and basically said, stop talking about this. And by the way, we've got more pictures of you. And what does Jeff Bezos do? He publishes the entire thing, um, which is you know incredible, frankly, and says, well, I'm not gonna be blackmailed. If you've got these pictures of me, obviously it's embarrassing, but I'm not gonna be blackmailed. And then the whole thing kind of dies down. So the story that I published at the end of January 2020 was that there had been very little known about the way Bezos had been hacked. Uh, it was a real mystery because obviously you'd think that he'd have, you know, major security around his phone or that it would be constantly being checked. But the story that, that we published was that Bezos had received a WhatsApp message from uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, that, that they had exchanged numbers at a meeting um, when they had met while Mohammed bin Salman had been in the United States earlier the, in the year, and that basically um, he'd sent Jeff Bezos a bizarre you know, video. Uh, bizarre, it was one of these kind of jokey, or you know, actually it was a, a musical rendition, I believe and had sent this to the world's richest man who had clicked on it, and that that is how uh, the hacking was initiated. 
and that there was evidence that data had been exfiltrated from the phone as a a result of that. And so there was this personal connection of Mohammed bin Salman being the vehicle, allegedly, to have hacked the phone. And that's the story we published, which spread around the world pretty quickly. So, Stephanie, can I ask, why do you think this story ended up being authored by you? So how come uh, you were the one to get this story while I'm sure others were were sniffing around it as well? Um, I think that in this case, I was quite persistent. Um, I I had gotten the tip. That was months and months and months before it was published. I had gotten the tip, but I had not been allowed to pursue it. And then it became a little bit like my white whale. I mean, that I just wanted to, to get it. And I think it's important for journalists to have white whales that they want to get, uh, even if they know they can't get it right away. My main task was trying to convince the person who I was speaking to that I could pursue the story and try to kind of nail it down because it wouldn't be enough for that person to say, okay, publish it. Um, I needed a lot more than that. But first I needed the permission to be able to to go about doing that. And so I would say the hardest part of the task was convincing the person that I could go with it and then obviously trying to get more people to confirm those basic facts for me. There were a lot of challenges, but often this job is, is about persuasion and persuading sources to do things that in some cases their instincts are telling them not to do, (laughs) frankly, and trying to persuade them of why it's a good thing to do, even if it's something they don't want to do. What were the conversations that you were having with your editors? What were they asking you and, you know, what were the conversations you were having to have with them as it got closer to you feeling you were, you were persuading your source to, to agree? Um, I was continuing to pursue other stories, obviously, but it was always in the back of my mind that hopefully I could strike on that story when the time was right. And I really wanted it to be an exclusive. I mean, I wanted the scoop. Like, you do have to be quite driven. I wanted it to be an exclusive Guardian story. You know, I'll be quite frank about that. So I, I wasn't necessarily talking to editors about it on a regular basis. In fact, it, it's something, here's another thing, you know, I would say I talked to one editor about it because it wasn't something that was kind of broadly discussed, which I think anyone would say who works in a newsroom who's an investigative reporter, it's not like there is, um, at least in my experience, you know, big discussions about tips, hot tips like that that are being followed, um, unless it's sort of a need to know basis until you've really got something. And, I mean, were you aware that perhaps this source was talking to others or were you quite confident that you were the only reporter that was really badgering them for for the go-ahead? Well, I don't think anyone can badger anyone like I do. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wasn't totally confident. I was hopeful, but that's always a big issue. That's always a big issue. In fact... This other story I had worked on about a Rod Rosenstein that I mentioned, I was quite conscious of the fact that that could come out. It, it was a very similar story in that I was aware of that fact. Um, it, it, there are actually a lot of parallels where you know I had to, I, I was aware of certain facts 
but I had to also wait before I could pursue it. So that story I also knew for a long time before I was able to publish it. Come to think of it, that sort of seems to be a running theme in my work. So I would just encourage all the journalists out there to just be persistent. And if you have that story, you can't get it. You know, things can still be really relevant even if they're, you know, six months later, I'm telling you something about it. You know, if the, if the underlying event, in this case, the hacking of Jeff Bezos' phone or the separation of children from their parents, you know, those are big enough issues where it's still really important to, you know, shine a light on those things. How practically do you badger someone without just harassing them, essentially? Yeah, you don't want to harass them, but... I think sometimes it's just about showing commitment, that you are committed to an issue that you care, convincing a source that your outlet is a good, uh, you know, would be the appropriate outlet for them to release, or, you know, for them to share information with you. Luckily with The Guardian, you know, we have millions and millions of readers, but also as a reporter that you'll do it justice, making people feel comfortable, making sure people know that you will protect them. Those are all elements of the various stories I've discussed, actually, not just the Bezos one. The main point of the story was this WhatsApp message um, that is was alleged to have been the reason, or that at least I believe Bezos believes is the reason he was hacked, let's put it that way. What we know about spyware is it's very hard to track. It's very hard to prove, um, unless you're monitoring a phone while it's happening. You know, you have experts who will give their opinions, but the end of the day it's quite difficult and so often we talk about people being targeted even if we kind of think that they were probably hacked we talk about them being targeted because it's so hard to prove um, and this is such you know sophisticated software that's being used on these phones but I was gonna say you know this other there, there was there's kind of step one and step two step two was okay he was hacked now did Saudi Arabia give that information to the National Enquirer that was a question that I was not able to, you know, answer. We, as much as we knew that Saudi Arabia had a relationship with the National Enquirer, that is, and that's kind of been established separately because they've worked together um, to publish this kind of um, this this magazine that praised Mohammed bin Salman before he made a trip to the U.S. Um, so that was, it was well established that they had a relationship and also that there's a big relationship between Trump and the National Enquirer. Being able to fit those pieces together and whether one caused the other was not something I was able to do. And so then the question is, do you even mention the National Enquirer in your piece? I mean, these are kind of the decisions being made about writing it. And we did mention the National Enquirer and the fact that they had information, but we, could, we never wrote, um, we never published a story that said, the hacked information was then landed in the National Enquirer, you know, uh, because we don't know that as a fact. So the story is published. What's the reaction and what happens in terms of follow-up? Well, there was a very big response, especially among those, you know, I had heard kind of anecdotally, this is not the kind of thing I'd written, but, you know, anecdotally, I'd heard that there was like shock through, you know, Davos, because there were, the uh, meeting in Davos was going on at that time. And the idea that this huge figure in business had been personally targeted. Um, and I think there was also worry. Um, and and it, this, again, it's not something I could write um authoritatively but anecdotally I'd heard 
that there was worry among lawmakers in Washington who had traded messages with him. So there, there, so it was quite sensational. You know, it was a sensational story. It was definitely covered um, across the board, different outlets. There was a very uh, weak denial, which was not surprising, from Saudi Arabia. You know, they tend to ignore messages from me. In fact, um, it's hard for me to even email the U.S., the Saudi embassy in Washington, because my uh, messages seem to get blocked. They came out denying it, but that was really not a surprise. They've also denied the uh, murder of Khashoggi, you know, was uh, ordered by Mohammed bin Salman. And in fact, it denied it even occurred for a long time. The, the issue that was surprising in terms of the reaction was that you ended up having other you know, reporters who cover technology um, and who cover hacking coming out and uh, questioning the story because, or, yeah, you know, truly, when I say questioning, I'm not uh, over, you know, it wasn't necessarily more than that. No one was saying the story is wrong. But there were, you know, people who write about technology in depth who wanted kind of more evidence of what had happened. And subsequent to the story being published, the there were investigators at the United Nations who had come out and said, that they had looked into this matter and they issued a report. Um, it seemed to have Bezos's blessing and he ended up tweeting a picture of Jamal Khashoggi's fiance after the story was published, which was, you know, I think rightly seen as a confirmation and as a statement of support and a statement against Saudi Arabia. I mean, there was a lot to kind of capture in that photo he tweeted out of himself and um, Hatije Shenges. It reflected to some extent the difficulty in trying to prove um, that these things, you know, in an ironclad way, which just is actually not really possible. Um, of course, in the meantime, we've written other stories about Saudi Arabia being behind hacks, and most recently, that software that they use was alleged to have been used to hack, you know, dozens, literally dozens of journalists at Al Jazeera, and that that was done, people believe, at the behest of the Saudi Arabian government and the United Arab Emirates. So it's not exactly, you know, a new thing that the Saudis are targeting people. They've also targeted a journalist at the New York Times who was writing a book about MBS, um, according to a report by Citizen Lab. So you had these, you know, in a few outlets, some people questioning the story, even as we know this is what Saudi Arabia does. That did kind of die down a bit, but I think it was because the usual suspects who tend to report these things, uh, were, you know, weren't the ones who were doing it. In, in the days that followed, were there further leads that emerged as a result of your story that you were then able to follow up. Yes, which is actually one reason why I would recommend that sometimes even if you don't have all the facts that you want, it, it can be worth writing what you have, you know, if you've tried and tried and tried, but sometimes it's worth publishing, you know, the not perfect story. I mean, in this case, you could argue it wasn't a perfect story because I didn't have the smoking gun between the National Enquirer and the Saudis. Should I have waited for another year to see if that emerged? You know, I don't think so. I think this was enough. So after this story, the only the, the story that we published was that the FBI had been in contact with the Bezos team and was aware of this. Um, that was kind of a new story. I also published a story getting back to the National Enquirer angle about 
the brother of the woman who Bezos had the extramarital affair with and some of his commentary about it, about um, not having given uh, the National Enquirer all the information that they claimed to have had, which raised more questions about how they got that information. I have a very high awareness of the lack of security of phones, which everyone should have. You know, our phones are not safe, period. I mean, you can definitely take precautions, but they're just not safe. You know, the safest thing is to meet people in person when you can. We did publish a story, my colleague Nick Hopkins and I, who was the uh, head of investigations at the time, that there was some evidence, although it was not ironclad, that we were being targeted um, for hacking, possibly by the Saudi regime. And that was as a result of some of the investigative stories we had done. This is pre-Bezos. And since I've, you know, continued to hear rumblings that I'm possibly the target of, of the hacking and surveillance techniques by the government, although it's not something I can ever prove, but I take precautions. With the Bezos story, what questions have still to be answered about that? Did they give it to the National Enquirer? <laughs> And if anyone wants to call me, they can. Uh, that's my. That's the story I want. Uh, was there any coordination between getting, you know, these photos and this information to the National Enquirer? That's one question. My second question is uh, whether there were any American or any from anywhere officials, business leaders, you know, bankers, lawmakers, people who gave their number to MBS who have reason to suspect that they were hacked. My other question is whether there was any coordination um, in any of this with the officials from the Trump administration or any discussion with them. And my last question is, you know, to what extent the Justice Department and the FBI would, is still pursuing this. Is there anything else you would say to would-be investigative journalists just in terms of sourcing these stories um, and bringing them to uh, to the public eye? Well, I, I had a more general tip to um, journalists, which is to not be afraid of financial journalism. You know, I think people might even want to shy away from that. Maybe they don't see it as, as sexy as, um, you know, getting right into politics, for example, or um, something along those lines. But it's really a great basis for all journalists to be fami somewhat familiar. I mean, I still get a little bit, you know, you know, it's, it's, it can be difficult, but to um, try to be just comfortable with financial journalism, because it, at the end of the day, you'll find a lot of stories, there will be an element of that. And so if you feel insecure around, you know, accounts or looking through corporate filings, that's not gonna serve you very well. You know, people who deal with money, people who deal in, in that world can be very good sources. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University.